Okay, we hit a familiar refrain today. After Deborah and Barak and Yael defeat Sisera and King Jabin, Israel has peace for 40 years. But once again, quote, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. Sigh. Remember that the Israelites had solemnly committed themselves to a monogamous relationship with Yahweh many times, explicitly. They promised to be faithful to God and God alone. These promises were patterned after solemn covenants, marriage covenants, where the groom gives lavish gifts to the bride and makes a home for her and protects her and pledges himself to her. And this bride went right out and jumped in bed with her old boyfriend, right? This is exactly how it feels to God. Some of you know what it feels like to have a partner commit adultery. It is the ultimate rejection. And yet we often forgive it because we still love our partner. We still have hope for them and for the relationship. And God lets Israel lay in the bed she chooses even when he sees her suffering. But then when Israel herself comes to her senses and cries out to God to rescue her, he does over and over and over again. God is far more patient and forgiving than any of us would ever be, I think. This uh, book of Judges, the book of Heroes, is the story of one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Remember that these are stories of the depravity in Israel at this time and how God responds to their cries of desperation and how God enters into the muck and the mire to save his beloved people. This time it's the Midianites and the Amalekites from the south, plus other nomads from the desert east of the Jordan. The Midianite coalition waits until the Israelites plant and nurture their crops, and then the Midianites descend on them with hordes of men mounted on camels. They loot and destroy and trample the crops and then gallop away, leaving starvation in their wake. As a side note, this is the time, this part here in Judges is the time in world history when camels became far more common in the ancient Near East, the A&E. We had mentions of camels in stories way back in Genesis, hundreds of hundreds of years ago. Um, but it is likely that the camels in Genesis were added by authors writing the stories down much, much later. That's another reason we think the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were likely written down sometime after the period of Judges. Camels didn't become part of the A&E culture until right around this time. Mm -hmm. Up until this time, donkeys were the more common beast of burden and of travel up to this point. And you see them referred to, and donkeys remain the primary um, mode of travel in the promised land itself. So back to the story. After the Midianites destroy the crops every year for many years, the Israelites cry out to the Lord in their hunger and God sends them a prophet to tell them, I told you that's what would happen to you if you forsook me for other gods. Let those other gods save you. Ouch. This is the first visible crack in the relationship between the Lord and Israel. This is the first time 
the Lord has refused to step in. It's not good when the Lord refuses to help you. How far must you have pushed him to get to this point? But the Lord eventually has pity on them and relents. It's during this time that a young man named Gideon comes into the story. He's the youngest son of a rich man of the tribe of Manasseh, and he lives here in Ophrah on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. He's down in his father's wine press, basically a big hole in the ground, large enough for several men to press grapes into wine. But Gideon isn't pressing grapes. He's hiding from the Midianites, trying to thresh a crop of wheat. When suddenly a man comes up and says, the Lord be with you, mighty warrior. Gideon, startled, looks around. There's no one there but him. He says, me? Are you talking to me? The Lord is not with me or anybody else. Look at us having to hide from the Midianites. Gideon is our next superhero, but he's a little different than the others. He's more of a Clark Kent Superman combination. Half the time he comes across as this timid, fearful, worried little character. And half the time he's incredibly bold and courageous. He's in Clark Kent mode right now. After Gideon says, who me? The man says, go in strength. I'm sending you to deliver your people from the Midianites. Can you imagine the look Gideon gives him? He can see this is a very important man, but it's no one he recognizes. And he begins to wonder if this is the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself in human form. So Gideon says, if I am to deliver the people from the Midianites, please give me a sign. Promise me you'll stay here and wait while I prepare an offering for you. And the man promises to wait. So Gideon runs and prepares a goat with some broth and a loaf of flatbread. When he brings it out, the man says, put the meat and the bread here on this rock. Pour the broth out. So Gideon does as he says and steps back. And the man reaches out his staff and fire flares out from his staff and consumes the meat and the bread. And Gideon knows that this is indeed the angel of the Lord. And he cries out, woe is me, I am a dead man, for I have seen the face of the Lord. But the Lord says, do not fear, you're not going to die. And there Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and calls it Yahweh is Shalom, God is peace. Later that night, the angel of the Lord comes again to Gideon and says, go now, take your father's second best bull to the big altar your father built to Baal right in the middle of town. Tear down your father's altar, make a new altar to Yahweh your God. Cut down your father's wooden pole in honor of Asherah and use the wood to offer your father's bull as a burnt offering to me. Now, this is a big ask. That bull is hugely valuable. And the altar? Gideon is terrified. This is the big altar to Baal and the wooden Asherah pole that the entire town worships at. I mean, it's possible his father Joash was either a pagan priest or perhaps a sort of a mayor of the town. At the very least, he's a leading and very wealthy citizen. And Gideon is going to get in big, big trouble if he does this. 
Nevertheless, he gathers 10 men and they go in the middle of the night to do the deed because they're afraid of what might happen if they try to do it during the day. When dawn comes and the men of the town see that their altar has been destroyed and the Asherah pole cut down, they launch a manhunt for the culprit. It doesn't take long before someone points the finger at Gideon. The men go to Gideon's father, Joash, and say, hand Gideon over to us. He must be put to death for what he's done. Thinking quickly, Joash says, who are you to defend Baal? If he is a true God, let him defend himself. And of course, nothing whatsoever happens because Baal is not a true God. Baal is not a God like Yahweh. And ever after that, Gideon is called Yerubaal, which means he who quarrels with Baal. Gideon is a kind of a strange hero. He's obviously a trained warrior, but he's really cautious, cautious to the point of being fearful, not who you might pick first on your team as your hero. Nevertheless, he's the one the Lord chooses to save Israel. So when the season rolls around and the time comes for the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other raiders from the east to swoop in to destroy Israel's crops, Gideon sounds the alarm calling all the warriors throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali to fight. They respond quickly, but the situation is hopeless. There are only 32,000 Israelite warriors to face 155,000 invaders. Remember to take all these numbers with a grain of salt, but you get the picture. The odds are enormously lopsided. And Gideon goes to the Lord and says, now is the time to do as you promised. If I am doing your will, if I am still the one you want to save Israel, now is the time to give me a sign. I'm going to lay this fleece out on the ground tonight. In the morning, if the fleece is wet with dew, but the ground is dry, I will know I am doing your will. And sure enough, early the next morning, the ground is completely dry, but Gideon wrings an entire bowl full of water out of that fleece. But then he gets to thinking, oh, Maybe the ground dried up normally and it just takes longer for wool to dry. Maybe that wasn't such a good test. So he tries a second time. He says, Lord, please don't be mad at me, but can we do the test the other way around? Tonight, let the ground be wet and let the fleece be dry. Then I'll know for sure that I'm the one you have chosen. And sure enough, early the next morning, the ground is soaking wet, but the fleece is completely dry. This for sure could only be the Lord's doing. So Gideon sets out with his 32,000 men and they camp overnight at the spring of Harad, just south of where the Midianites are camped. And the Lord says to Gideon, you brought too many men with you. The Israelites will think they have saved themselves. And the whole point of this is that they know they know for sure that it is I and I alone who can save them. You need to call out some of those men. And the Lord reminds him of the rules of war the Lord has already given the Israelites. Remember those? They're always to let anyone who is afraid go home or anyone who is recently married or even just engaged or who has bought a new house and hasn't had time to enjoy it. 
Apparently, the Israelites have forgotten these rules. They've forgotten that they do not win by forcing men into service. They win only by the word of the Lord. So Gideon invites anyone who is afraid to go on home. And 22,000 men leave. Yikes, those Midianite hordes with their camels and their ferocious allies must be scary indeed. Now Gideon only has 10,000 men left. 10,000 versus 155,000. Not good. And again, the Lord says, you have too many men, Gideon. The Israelites must know that I am the one fighting for them. Take your men down to the spring to drink. And the Lord tells him to watch his men to see how they drink the water and to separate those that lap the water like a dog from those who kneel to drink. And the Lord tells him to keep only those soldiers who lap like a dog. Now, I was always taught in Sunday school that those soldiers he kept were the best of the best, the elite fighting men. But that's not necessarily the case. There's a Jewish historian who was born right around this, the time Jesus was crucified. His name is Josephus. Have you ever heard of him? He wrote several histories and had a crazy, dangerous, fascinating life. And anyway, one of the histories he wrote is called Jewish Antiquities, and it is a history of the Jewish people. He wrote down his current culture's understanding of their history, going all the way back through the Hebrew Bible, up through the intertestamental period, and on through the time of Jesus. It's an amazing treasure trove of information. And of course, like all ancient histories, you have to take his numbers and his accounts with a grain of salt, but it is an invaluable resource. So I looked up his version of the story of Gideon, and in it, he says that those who kneeled should be regarded as brave men and they should therefore be sent home. The kneeling ones should be sent home because they were brave, but the 300 who hurriedly scooped the water in their hands, those men were cowards and terrified of their enemies. Hmm. And that God told Gideon to keep only the cowards. Wow. I had never considered that before. Even the cowards or frightened ones had already gone home. We saw, you know, they were in the 22,000. Um, and so the guys laying on their stomachs to lap water like a dog don't seem to be the most prepared or vigilant warriors, um, even if they're not necessarily cowards, right? And those were the only ones Gideon was allowed to keep. So now Gideon is left with only 300 fighting men on foot against 155,000 mounted Midianites. Sheesh. And the Lord says, Go, go now. I have given Midian into your hands. But Gideon didn't exactly hop up and press the attack. And the Lord says, what's wrong? Are you afraid too? All right, take your page boy and sneak up to the Midianite camp and eavesdrop on them. So Gideon and his servant Parah sneak down into the Midianite camp. There they overhear one of the men telling a dream. He says, I dreamed a barley cake tumbled and rolled through our camp until it crashed against the tent and overturned it. And his friend says, oh, no, that means God has given us into the hands of Gideon. 
Gideon and Parah run back to camp, rousing the 300 soldiers. Get up, get up, every man, grab a torch and put it under a bucket. Grab a ram's horn and follow me. The Lord has given the Midianites into our hands. Then Gideon sends a hundred of the men one way, hundred the other way, and he takes the final hundred straight ahead. They surround the Midianites and at Gideon's signal, they blow their ram's horns and reveal their torches. The Midianites think a great army has surrounded them. Not all the Midianite allies speak the same language, and the Lord causes great confusion to fall on them as the men of Gideon stand around the perimeter and blow their horns and wave their torches. The Midianites begin falling all over themselves to get away, killing each other by mistake and fleeing in the only direction they can. Gideon and his three, 300 men chase them, calling to all the men of Israel for help as they pass. The men of Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and Ephraim all join in the pursuit of the Midianites. That day, the Midianites are wiped out. The rout is so great that it is referred to throughout the Bible as the day the Lord destroyed Midian. In fact, the victory is so lopsided that the men of Ephraim get mad that Gideon didn't call them in sooner to help so they could have some of the glory too. All they get to do is help with the mop-up operations. But Gideon placates the men of Ephraim saying, what you did was far greater than what I did. You chased and captured and killed their two generals, Oreb and Zeb, Raven and Wolf. And the men of Ephraim are mollified. Remember the men of Ephraim in this exchange. It's going to come up again. The mop-up operations are intense. Gideon and his 300 stay in pursuit of the two Midianite kings who are in danger of escaping. As they pass Sukkot, you remember the significance of Sukkot as always being a place of rest for the Israelites after a dangerous encounter. This, this is the third time it shows up in that context. Gideon asked the elders of Sukkot for bread and water, but they are not Israelites and they spurn him saying, you have not yet actually defeated the kings of Midian. Well, this was in direct defiance of the Lord, wasn't it? The Lord provided Sukkot as a place of refreshment and the Lord had indeed defeated the kings of Midian, even if they weren't yet captured, but the elders of Sukkot rebelled. So Gideon curses them and warns them he'll be back to punish them. Then he goes on to the Tower of Pedial. You'll recognize that place as well. That is the place by the Jabbok River where Jacob wrestled with God and his name was changed to Israel. Surely the people in this place will recognize Gideon as God's chosen, but no, they too reject Gideon and Gideon curses them in the same way. By the time Gideon tracks down the two Midianite kings, they've holed up in a place called Karkor with their remaining force of about 15,000 men, 300 to 15,000, still huge odds. But Gideon mounts a surprise attack, and once again, the Lord routs the enemy. When he finally captures the two Midianite kings, Gideon orders his young son to kill them. But his son is too young and too frightened. He must have only been about 10 or 12 years old. 
the kings mock Gideon saying, this is a man's work, kill us yourselves. And so Gideon rises up and kills them. And as he returns home, he punishes the men of Sukkot and of Peniel as he had promised. Finally, the Israelites have peace once again, and they try to make Gideon king of Israel. But Gideon refuses, saying, only the Lord will rule over you. Nevertheless, he gathers gold from the men, golden earrings and nose rings the Midianite men had been wearing, and he fashions an ephod from them and places it in the center of town. You'll remember that an ephod is the ornate breastplate the high priest wears. It is what holds the urim and thummim that is used to inquire of God what his will might be. So Gideon has set up something that is not of God for the Israelites to consult as an oracle. Remember the high priest and the Urim and Thummim are all down in Shiloh right now, not up here in Ophrah where Gideon lives. So all of Israel prostitutes itself before Gideon's ephod by worshiping it. And it becomes a snare to Gideon and to his family. Nevertheless, during the remaining 40 years of Gideon's life, the land enjoys peace. Gideon himself takes many wives and has 70 sons. He also keeps one concubine over in Shechem, the place of choosing. Now this concubine has one son. The son is named Abimelech. The grammar is not specific as to whether Gideon names him this or whether the bastard son takes this name for himself. The name is a compound one, as you can see. We've run across it before. Abi means father, as in Abraham, and Melech means king. The name means father is king. I kind of think Abimelech may have named himself this. It's certainly consistent with his arrogant character. He lives with his mother's clan in Shechem, and he bitterly resents his 70 half-brothers up in Ophrah. He convinces the citizens of Shechem that he should be their ruler, and he collects a tribute from them. With that money, he hires a band of thugs, and they go to Ophrah where his brothers live. Abimelech and his thugs massacre all but one of his 70 brothers on a single day. The youngest brother, Jotham, escapes. He runs for his life. Hearing that the citizens of Shechem are about to crown Abimelech king, Jotham climbs Mount Gerasim above Shechem and shouts down to them. Once upon a time, the trees wanted a king. They tried to make the olive tree their king, but the olive tree said, why should I give up making my oil to be king? My oil blesses men and gods. So the trees tried to make the fig tree their king, and the fig tree said, why should I stop producing fruit to be king? My fruit is good and sweet. So the trees tried to make the grapevine their king, but the vine said, why should I give up my wine to be king? My wine cheers up both men and gods. Finally, the trees said to the thorn bush, you be our king. And the thorn bush accepted and said, here, come sit in my shade. Now everyone knows a thorn bush has no shade. 
So it added, and if you do not sit in my shade, my fire will come out and consume even the greatest of you. And Jotham cries, if you have acted honorably towards my father Gideon and his family, Gideon, who risked his life for you and saved you, and if you have acted in good faith in making Abimelech your king, then may you be blessed with joy in each other. But if you have been treacherous, let fire from Abimelech destroy you all. And then Jotham runs for his life. As you can imagine, Abimelech was a horrible king. And it says in Judges 9.23 that God sends an evil spirit to create discord between Abimelech and the citizens he rules in Shechem. This idea that God sends evil spirits to do stuff is part of the worldview of this ancient culture. We'll find it all over the Bible, even in the New Testament. All things good or bad are attributed to the gods, weather, illness, health, fertility, even good or bad relationships. The spirits, good and bad, are considered to be the servants of the God, all the gods. This is how they understand gods, and this is how they understand Yahweh. They envision Yahweh sending messengers like angels, as well as spirits, such as this evil spirit, to make things happen. So don't mistake this as a theological statement of how God is or how the spiritual world is actually ordered. This is simply how these people think the spiritual world works. So don't go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how God would use evil spirits. That's not the point here. The point is that Abimelech and the people of Shechem turn on each other. The end result is treachery and civil war, albeit on a rather small localized scale. Abimelech attacks the people of Shechem and they flee to a fortified stronghold, ironically named El Barit, which means covenant of the high God. Abimelech traps them there and sets fire to the stronghold, killing all within. He then marches to Thebes, another nearby town where the people are barricaded in a tower stronghold. He tries to do the same thing to them, but as he stacks the wood at the base of the tower, a woman drops a heavy millstone on his head and cracks his skull. Realizing he's mortally wounded, he orders his page boy to run him through with his sword so no one can say he was killed by a woman. The page boy obliges, but Abimelech is forever afterwards remembered in Israel's history as a brutal coward who was killed by a woman. And thus the curse of Jotham from the top of Mount Gerizim comes to pass. Abimelech and the people of Shechem destroy each other and are repaid in full for their treachery and murder. Today, in our breakout sessions, we'll talk about what it means to, quote, fleece God like Gideon did, to ask him yes, no questions to determine his will for us. Now, everybody's coming back in. Be sure to turn your mics on so we can talk to each other. Gail, that time is just not enough, girl. I know, right? <laughs> uh, and I hate that we're not like all in a room together where I can kind of 
judge where everybody is and kind of more great, find a more graceful way to, to bring you all back in instead of cutting you off mid sentence. It feels very (laughs) brutal the way that this works. So I can't hear what's going on at all. So I'm sitting here in dead silence, looking at the clock, you know, you don't get to go into one of the groups. I I don't want to intimidate and I don't want to be tempted to respond. When I was in college, I used to sit on my hands and swear I will not participate. I will not participate. I will not raise my (laughs) And I never, ever got through a whole class without participating. Mm It just doesn't seem to be in the cards for me. So speaking of being in the cards, um, we were talking about how do you find, how should we figure out what God's will for us is? You know, what do you ask a yes or no question and roll the dice? I mean, where is the line between divining, which is, you know, clearly not good as from God's perspective to trying to hear God and maybe not, you know, feeling any sense of there being anything on the other side. And what, what did y'all, what y'all, what y'all come up with here? Well, you got the, we were talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have Uh, speak up a little, Russ, you're so soft. Sorry about that. Get closer to the We were saying we have the, uh, of course we have, we have the fortune of having, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Bible, especially the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if you, you can find good fellowship, uh, you have that too. Uh, uh, friends and family that you think are on good, solid ground uh, uh, with, with uh, you know, the word. Uh, but uh Basically, you know, one 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 thing I I kind of mentioned is, you know, most everything, uh, practically everything, or everything is born out of the two greatest commandments: love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. All right, those are foundational. All right, if you're, you know, so I think that that really uh, helps set the tone, but. Uh, ha- having the Holy Spirit and 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 being a workman that needeth not be ashamed <laughs> are the two pillars that I put into it. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, we basically said the same thing. Not exact same words, but we basically said the same thing. Tell yeah, we about talked that. about the fact that we have the benefit of um, of of the Bible, which the ancient people did not have. And we have the presence of the Holy Spirit that helps to us, give us wisdom. Um, and, um, and the, the perspective of history also that helps us. I'm, I'm sorry, the perspective of what Marlene? Of history, history. of history. Yeah. Let me jump in here about the Holy Spirit, since everybody's mentioned that. I want to um, just set a, a myth straight here. And that is that the Holy Spirit came into the lives of people at, at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. 
that is not the case. The Holy Spirit was operational from before the beginning of creation and all the way through. And the difference is, is if you recall in these stories, there are times where it specifically says the Holy Spirit fell on this person or the Holy Spirit filled this particular person for this particular task. That is exactly what happened at Pentecost to the apostles. Jesus was saying, you guys have been called just like that messenger, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and says, you have been called. Um, and Jesus says, you have been called, but the Holy, we need to wait till your the Holy Spirit comes on you in power to do what you need to do, because this is bigger than you. So um, just be careful in how you're using those words, because it matters. The Holy Spirit um, is not uh, property of Christians. Mm-hmm. I was commenting, and this is maybe a little sideways, but one thing, speaking of the Holy Spirit, I noticed when I was younger and young children, and as a young adult, before you become jaded and weighted by life, you're more sensitive to feeling angels, spirit. The, the op- you're more open, you're more receptive, you're more able to receive those messages a lot of times. And at least in my personal experience mm-hmm. was that. As you get older, you become distracted, you have other things taking your attention. And I think something is lost as, as we drift away from that innocence. Does that resonate mm-hmm. with anyone? Yeah. You Actually, know, go ahead. Actually, I find with me, it's the opposite. Um, now I'm more attuned, you know, looking back, I said, oh, yeah, that's right. That's that's where he was. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was the one. Yeah, yeah. And so now I'm more attuned to looking for that as opposed to when I was young, I wasn't. Well, I think a lot of it also has to do with your sensitivity to his spirit. I mean, if you're in the word often, if you're in with other people who love God, if you're under accountability, then clearly God has a better not a bigger, but, but a bigger platform with which to express himself than if you're on your own being, you know, the marble man and doing everything on your own terms. So if I can kind of culminate those two, Julia, when you started to say that, I instantly kind of was like, no, not me, because I was sharing that my philosophy of prayer, my theology of prayer, whatever, has changed dramatically over my life. I grew up in a very strict, um, I guess I would say strict Lutheran church about, you know, what prayer is and isn't. Then I went through the phase of don't ask prayer, God for strength or patience, because boy, he's going to test that to, you know, then the, the yes and no and look for the signs. And then I realized that, n- no, I could sit here and say, I need signs without even praying to God. And if it's what I'm looking for, I'm going to see them. But so now I guess what I've realized you know, and Shirley was sharing a roadmap about the highway, the bumps in the valleys. And, you know, God calls us, 
I, I guess now I, I view our prayer like Job is that we're going to be tested and are we using the right template to respond with? But then at the end, Julie, something that you said went, oh, I've shared with Gail that I went to church on my own, not through my parents. That And, and at first it maybe have started with what are they doing that I'm missing out on, but I grew up in El Paso, which is predominantly Catholic. And a lot of my friends at five years old were going to, you know, first communion or classes. And my mother was Catholic. My dad was Methodist and they didn't practice together. And so I asked my parents, what, what is this that my friends are going to? Well, they took me around the corner to the closest church, which was the Lutheran church, which is how I grew up in it. And it was close enough that even at six years old, I was walking there by myself after my parents took me a few times. And probably until you said this, and Gail, maybe I'm wrong, it kind of never, I've always said, you know, I feel like I was called to Jesus because I stayed at that church and went every single week hmm. without my parents, without, and, and eventually my brother started going and my mother converted. But is it possible that that was the Holy Spirit that moved me there? I course absolutely honestly stupidly i've never considered that (laughs) until this conversation and julia saying that because i just always considered i was called to god but never considered that that was the vehicle okay but but since then i've definitely waxed and waned and i shared in my thing that i i recently went through some of the worst time of my life and i was very angry at god and yeah, I kind of failed at that template. And, but, you know, throughout my life, I knew people that were like, oh, I'm, I'm choosing a car and I'm down to these two and I'm going to pray to God, which car. And I was like, God gave us a brain to discern those things. I don't understand. <laughs> and so now after the horrible thing that I've been through at the end, I see God's hand and went doy. Yes. But, Yes, Joe, that is that is it exactly. Very, very often we don't see the Holy Spirit's movement until we're looking back. Hindsight, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I want we're in the final couple of minutes. I want to share a few thoughts with you guys. You want to see my but, map I showed her real quick? But, but I just wanted to share with Julia that I think you're awesome right. Awesome map. That's where it hit me. This was a lot of people think God's will. This is something a psych professor taught me. Um, that a lot of people think God's will is a tightrope. When you fall off that tightrope, you're in trouble. You're out of God's will. But that God's will is actually like a big highway and there are obstacles and pitfalls and mountains that you have to either go through or around or under or whatever. And that no matter where you are on this path, you're still in God's will because the ultimate goal is where God wants you. In the right direction. not be able to see, you know, that, at the time, but then you look back and you go, Oh yeah, God brought me through that. So, yes, there's, there's, um, I, I, uh, I loved Joe's comment too, that, you know, God gave us a brain for a reason, you know? Um, and, 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 but I don't want to belittle asking God about the little things, you know, I think God cares about the little things. So, um, I wanted to, um, tell you a a couple of quick stories. One is a friend of mine some years ago had an opportunity to move from Texas to Arizona for a job. And, um, and the job was very appealing. It was something she wanted to do. And, 
Um, and she called me and asked me for advice um, and asked me, how do I know what God wants me to do? And what I told her was that if God has not told you not to do one of those things, then it's okay. Either way, you get to decide. It's your life. He gave you this life as a gift. And so and if God doesn't want you to do something, he's going to make it pretty clear, either through other people coming to you, you know, open your ears to, especially like if you're thinking about marrying somebody, that's one to open your ears to the other people in your life talking to you and, 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 and listen and consider, but, but, um, but, and so she, I said, just go with the one that you want to. The one that's that's calling to your heart and which she did and she has been really happy and it's been blessed but god would have blessed her path either way god's going to be there either direction you go it's which gets to your highway analogy surely i mean i think it god the one of the things that is particularly important about the god of the hebrew bible is that in that ancient time, idols were tied to the land. And wherever region you were in, you worshiped that God of that region. Yahweh is the first God to move with his people. Mm, that's, good. Okay? that's good. So remember that God still moves with his people. Yeah. The other thing that I, other story is that when I was a young woman in public accounting, young CPA, and I had one of my very first, you know, supervisory assignments, I had one whole person working for me. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, I, uh, we were working late at night once and, and, you know, we're ticking and tying stuff, mindless stuff, tying this to that. And so we're chit chatting and um, he, he was a young Jewish boy. And, um, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't know how to, you know, whether to believe in God or not. Hmm. And, and I put my pencil down and, and I said, well, I tell you what, if he's God, he's big enough to answer you. And I told him, I reminded him of the story of Gideon. And I said, you fleece God, fleece God, ask him a question. The only condition on this is that if he answers you, you believe and acknowledge it was God. That you can't fleece God and then say, oh, that was a coincidence or you know, that wasn't really God answering me. Um, that couldn't be God when God does answer you. And the last thing um, that I want to leave, leave you with here at exact straight up on the hour is um, what Ross brought up. And that is Jesus's criteria that we have. And that is, if you're trying to make a decision and determine God's will, ask yourself, is this honoring and consistent with a God who is loving and merciful 
and compassionate and kind and slow to anger and it all encompassing. And number two, is this honoring of and consistent with treating myself and the other people involved in the exact same way with love and compassion and kindness and welcome and embrace. I think of God as an embrace sometimes, you know? And the third thing and the final criteria is what will be the results of this? Is the result going to bring me and the other people involved to kindness, faithfulness, self-control, love, compassion, patience, goodness, life? Will it give them more life, however their life is defined? Or will my action or decision lead to self-hatred, rejection, strife, grief, hatred? Will it divide people? Will it reject people? Will it lead to death? If you apply those criteria, it's not going to matter whether you feel the presence or God or whether you think you have heard God's answer or not. I fully believe God is absolutely able to talk to any of us at any time in ways that we cannot avoid hearing. (laughs) All right. But absent that, apply that criteria. It is so simple. It is not rocket science. It is so accessible. And it doesn't matter what we've been taught elsewhere or what we might have read or what we might think the Bible might have said about the issue. Jesus broke the rules all the time. He was constantly fussing at folks for going with the letter of the law rather than with the heart of God, right? So go in peace knowing that you can indeed hear God and know God's will and that God gives us tremendous latitude and is going to be there wherever we travel.